Luke chapter 2, beginning in verse 8. Now there were in the same country shepherds living out in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were greatly afraid. Then the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be the sign to you, you will find a babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. My wife has always put a high priority on birthdays. We made sure that birthdays in our family were a big deal. When the kids were young, we threw seven birthday parties annually. It seems we were always planning a party or recovering from a party. It was never a dull moment. But the most important birthday party of the year was held on December 25th. The Adams family celebrated Jesus' birthday. And my wife Kathy would go all out. On Christmas morning, the kids would wake up and we would have a birthday cake with candles no less. A real birthday party. We wanted our kids to understand that Christmas is first and foremost the celebration of the birthday of our Lord Jesus. Christmas is a birthday party. Messiah was born, laid in a manger, and now we celebrate his birth. But unlike your birthday or my birthday, Jesus' birthday was not his beginning. He existed long before his incarnation. Rewind the time counter all the way back to zero, 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 and there you'll find Jesus. Fast forward to the end of time, and again, there you'll find Jesus. Jesus is from forever past, and he will be forever future. In Micah chapter 5, verse 2, God declared that out of the city of Bethlehem shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth have been from of old, from everlasting. That Hebrew word translated everlasting can be rendered beyond the vanishing point. As that theologian Buzz Lightyear once said, to infinity and beyond. It speaks of when time fades into eternity. Go as far back or as far forward as your mind can imagine, as far as it can stretch. And there you'll find the Messiah. In Isaiah 9, verse 6, the prophet refers to Jesus as the everlasting Father. Jesus had no beginning, and he has no end, which presents a problem when you throw him a birthday party. I mean, how many candles do you put on the cake? Trust me, if they haven't already, your kids will one day ask the question, How old is Jesus? To which my wife always gave the insightful answer, Ask your dad. (laughs) And here's what I learned to say when asked, how old is Jesus? He is forever young and he is forever old. Our Lord touches eternity in both directions. Jesus is eternal, timeless, transcendent. 
Yet he is also fresh, alive, and contemporary. Revelation calls him the Alpha and the Omega, or the A to Z, the first and the last. Jesus is a God who was, and who is, and who is to come. His stride spans the history of the universe. One foot sits on the threshold of time, the other at its back door. In his book, God Came Near, author Max Licato, he has a chapter entitled, 25 Questions for Mary. And he lists questions that he would like to ask the mother of Jesus. Here's a sampling. When Jesus saw a rainbow, did he ever mention a flood? Did you ever feel awkward teaching him how he created the world? When he saw a lamb being slaughtered, did he act differently? Did you ever see him with a distant look on his face as if he were listening to someone we couldn't hear? How did he act at funerals? Did the thought ever occur to you that the God to whom you were praying was asleep under your own roof? Did you ever catch him looking at the flesh on his arm while holding some dirt? And here's the final one. Did you ever think, that's God eating my soup? Jesus was born in Bethlehem, but he had been there before. Bethlehem was not his beginning. One author writes, this baby had overlooked the universe these rags keeping him warm were the robes of eternity. Mary touches the face of the infant God. How long was your journey? How long indeed? In Paul's letter to the Colossians, he says of Jesus, For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him, and for him. When God hung the stars, there was Jesus. Think of it, the star that led the wise men to the house where Mary and Joseph were was created by the child they came to visit. It's mind-boggling, but the carpenter from Nazareth was also the architect of the universe. When you study Old Testament history, it's startling to realize just how involved Jesus was not only in creation, but in many of God's dealings with his people. The second person of the Trinity appears frequently. He's never actually called Jesus, yet his identity is unmistakable. We call these Old Testament sightings Jesus' pre-incarnate or his pre-in-the-flesh appearances. Take, for example, Genesis 18. Abraham and Sarah are entertaining visitors in their tent. Sarah's in the kitchen when she overhears their mysterious guests tell her husband that his 90-year-old wife will soon conceive a son. Sarah can't help it. She laughs. That's when we read, the Lord, and the word literally is Yahweh. It was the unique name that the Hebrews gave to the Almighty. It was Yahweh who said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh, saying, shall I surely bear a child since I am old? Is anything too hard for God? At the appointed time, I will return to you according to the time of life, and Sarah shall have a son. 
Apparently, one of their guests that day was God incognito. The Almighty had come disguised as a man. Who else could that be but our Lord Jesus? In Genesis 22, Abraham is on the verge of sacrificing his only son Isaac. He's on the mountain where God will later sacrifice his only son Jesus. It's a foreshadowing of Calvary's cross. But in Genesis, we're told the angel of the Lord came and ordered Abraham to stop, told him, stay your hand. In Hebrew, the word angel means messenger. It can refer to either a heavenly or an earthly or human messenger. I believe in many of the Old Testament cases where the angel of the Lord is mentioned, he's none other than Jesus. And to me, it's such a provocative thought. On Mount Moriah, it's highly likely that it was our Savior who appeared to Abraham. Imagine Jesus was the one who stopped the sacrifice of Isaac, knowing that one day he would be sacrificed in Isaac's place. John chapter 8 fast forwards to Jesus' earthly ministry in a conversation he had one day with the Pharisees. He shocked them when he said, Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. Abraham had lived 2,000 years earlier. And yet Jesus says that the patriarch had seen his day. Father Abraham had actually hung out with Jesus of Nazareth. Of course, the Pharisees laughed at such a thought. How could that be? They mocked Jesus. They said, you're not yet 50 years old. And have you seen Abraham? And Jesus answered, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Jesus was older than the man who lived 2,000 years prior because he was God. Jesus even takes the name that God coined for himself in the burning bush. I am who I am. Moses told the Pharaoh, I am has sent me. Jesus was the person in that burning bush. Jesus was the person who paid Abraham that visit. And in saying so, The Jews knew that Jesus was claiming to be God. That's why they picked up rocks that day in order to stone him. Speaking of the burning bush, we assume it was the Father who spoke from the bush. But not so. Again, I believe Jesus made an unexpected appearance. Pay close attention to the details in Exodus 3, and it will force an interesting conclusion. We're told the angel of the Lord appeared to Moses in a flame of fire from the midst of the bush. Notice it's the same angel, the angel of the Lord, who appeared to Abraham. So he looked, and behold, the bush was burning with fire, but the bush was not consumed. Then Moses said, I will now turn aside and see this great sight, why the bush does not burn. So when the Lord, or Yahweh, saw that he turned aside to look, God called to him from the midst of the bush. Again, who's in the bush? The angel is in the bush. But this messenger speaks as if he's God himself. And he says, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. And then he said, do not draw near this place. Take your sandals off your feet. For the place where you stand is holy ground. Moreover, he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look upon God. The voice who spoke to Moses from the burning bush was the angel of the Lord, but he identifies himself as God. And I believe this messenger 
was none other than God's Son and our Messiah, Jesus. It's a fascinating thought, really, that before Jesus was wrapped in swaddling clothes and laid in a manger, his glory appeared on Sinai and shook a mountain. And this is where the Old Testament really becomes exciting. When you realize that our Lord Jesus is involved throughout, many of the old stories take on a new twist. For example, a close inspection of Exodus 14 tells us that it was the angel of God who led the Hebrews out of Egypt and destroyed their army at the Red Sea. Later in Acts chapter 7, in Stephen's history of Israel, he confirms that the same angel that Moses saw in the fiery bush was the one who bushwhacked the Egyptians. It was actually Jesus who executed the exodus. Stephen also tells us that it was the angel of the Lord who gave the law to Moses on Mount Sinai. Imagine how ridiculous it was then for the Jews to argue with Jesus over the meaning of the law, given that he was its author. I mean, who were they to criticize his interpretation? They were arguing the law with none other than the lawgiver. And despite what the old spiritual tells us, it was not Joshua who fought the battle of Jericho. It was Jesus. Read Joshua 5 carefully. The night before the battle, Joshua couldn't sleep, so he went for a walk on the riverbank. There he saw a man in the shadows, and like any good sentinel, Joshua confronted him. Friend or foe? This unexpected soldier replied, As commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped, and said to him, What does my Lord say to his servant? Then the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take your sandal off your foot, for the place where you stand is holy. And Joshua did so. Yet who was this commander who pulled rank on General Joshua? It couldn't be an ordinary angel, for Joshua fell on his face before him and worshipped him. And nowhere in Scripture does an angel of God allow himself to be worshipped. Only God himself is to receive worship. Notice also the commander gives Joshua the same instructions that Moses received on Mount Sinai. Take off your sandals. The place where you stand is holy. It's obvious the commander who won the battle of Jericho was the same voice that spoke from the burning bush. They both were pre-incarnate appearances of Jesus. Realize long before Jesus paid his visit to Jericho and called Zacchaeus down from the sycamore tree, he had already seen those same city walls come a-tumbling down. And there are many other examples of Jesus' pre-incarnate appearances. He appeared to Hagar and made promises to her son Ishmael. He wrestled with Jacob and pinned him with a blessing. Jesus even commissioned Gideon to fight against the Midianites. In fact, I believe it was Jesus, the angel of the Lord, who intercepted Balaam's donkey and prohibited the sorcerer from pronouncing a curse on Israel. A thousand years later, Jesus would ride a donkey into Jerusalem, not to curse the nation, but to bless it. In Judges 13, an angel appeared to a man named Manoah and announced the birth of his son Samson. And when Manoah asked the angel his name, he replied, Why do you ask my name, seeing it is wonderful? This is the same name given to the Savior 
the Jewish Messiah some 600 years later. In Isaiah 9, verse 6, the coming of Messiah is called Wonderful Counselor. When the angel left Manoah, he told his wife, we have seen God. Manoah somehow knew the angel of the Lord and God were one and the same. It was another pre-incarnate sighting of God's son, Jesus. Perhaps the most amazing pre-birthday work of Jesus occurred just outside the walls of Jerusalem in the year 722 B.C. Samaria had just fallen, and it seemed Jerusalem was next. It was truly a crisis moment. The mighty Assyrian army had the city surrounded. The Jewish king Hezekiah was scared, so he prayed for God's deliverance. And in 2 Kings 19, verse 35, the scripture records how God answered. It came to pass on a certain night that the angel of the Lord went out and killed in the camp of the Assyrians 185,000. And what's fascinating are the words of the prophet Isaiah, a contemporary of King Hezekiah, in regards to this battle. In Isaiah 8, he writes of the Assyrian general, He will pass through Judah. He will overthrow and pass over. He will reach up to the neck. And the stretching out of his wings will fill the breath of your land, O Emmanuel. And then he writes, Speak the word, but it will not stand, for God is with us. The phrase literally means Emmanuel. Isaiah says the Assyrian army will overflow the land, but this Emmanuel will come to her defense. He will defend Judah. Apparently, Emmanuel was the angel of the Lord who killed the 185,000 Assyrian troops outside of Jerusalem. And Emmanuel is the interesting name that's given to Jesus that first Christmas by the angel who appeared to his stepdad. Joseph needed to know that Mary's baby had already been to battle. Imagine the Emmanuel who drew his sword to defend Jerusalem, laid down his sword, and was laid in a manger. The battle-hardened warrior became an infant. The avenger who spilled the enemy's blood to save Judah will now shed his own blood to save the world. On our trips to Jerusalem, we always visit the Mount of Olives. And we stand in the place where Jesus wept over Jerusalem. On the Sunday before he was crucified, Jesus looked out over the city from that spot and he cried, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. Today, a church stands in the spot where Jesus shed his tears. The name of the church is Dominus Flevit which is Latin for the Lord wept. But what's stunning about the church is its shape, its dome. It's built in the shape of a teardrop. There on the Mount of Olives is a perpetual reminder of the tears that Jesus shed over his wayward people. For long centuries, Jesus wanted to bring healing to them, but they refused his help. Recall his words, How often I wanted to gather your children... What was in Jesus' thoughts when he made that statement? What ancient images flashed across the screen of his mind as he uttered those words? Their grumblings in the wilderness? Their constant worship of idols? 
the crushing invasions of Israel's enemies, the rejected warnings of her prophets. Jesus had seen all this history unfold from his box seat in heaven. He was engaged, also often personally involved. Over and over, Jesus had longed to intervene on Israel's behalf, but his people were not willing. See, here's my big point this morning. Bethlehem was not Messiah's beginning. Mary's newborn baby was not a novice. Jesus came to the manger by way of majesty. Jesus had greeted the dawning of time. He had poured the footings of the universe. He had made man from the mud. He was the one who sets the course of nations, who had caused kings to rise and kingdoms to crumble. Jesus was the mighty warrior, the everlasting father, the eternal king, the self-existent one, the commander-in-chief of the Lord's army, the great I am, the lawgiver, the ruler of all creation, and more. Jesus is the one who engineered every turn in God's dealings with his people. More than being privy to divine plans, Jesus possessed divinity himself. Jesus shared glory with the God who shares his glory with no one. Yet this same Jesus came into the world a baby. Can you believe it? Of all things, a baby. A baby is not the way you'd expect the defender of Israel, the commander of righteousness, to make his first fleshly appearance on the world stage. The Almighty became weak. The self-existent one became dependent on the nurturing of an inexperienced teenage peasant. Mary was barely old enough to babysit for your kids. The king of angels became defenseless, exposed to a harsh, cold, cruel world. Alfred Edersheim writes, It seems so strange that on such a slender thread as the feeble throb of an infant life, the salvation of the world should hang. And no special care to watch over its safety, no better shelter be provided it than a stable, no other cradle than a manger. Messiah was laid in a feed trough. Listen to a poem by Lucy Shaw written through Mary's eyes as she cuddles the newborn king. Blue homespun and the bend of my breast keep warm this small hot naked star fallen to my arms. Rest you who have so far to come. Now nearness satisfies the body of God sweetly. Quiet he lies, whose vigor hurled a universe. He sleeps, whose eyelids have not closed before. His breath, so slight it seems no breath at all, once ruffled the dark deeps to sprout a world. Charmed by doves' voices, the whisper of straw, he dreams, hearing no music from his other spheres. Breath, mouth, ears, eyes, he is curtailed, who overflowed all skies, all years, older than eternity. Now he is new, now native to earth as I am, nailed to my poor planet, caught that I might be free, blind in my wound to know my darkness ended, brought to this birth for me to be newborn, and for him to see me mended, I must see him torn. Mary cuddled 
the infinite infant, he had come so far to become so vulnerable. And here's what I want you to see today. It's only against this backdrop of his preexistence that we can appreciate Jesus' incarnation, his coming in the flesh. As G.K. Chesterton once put it, the incarnation added courage to the virtues of the Creator. The King of Holiness braved the dangers of this fallen planet. When Jesus was born, he swapped riches for poverty, glory for scorn, respect for obscurity, honor for humiliation, praise for pain, heaven for a stable. He left the warmth and security of God's heavenly throne to live in a harsh and wicked down here. The invincible became vulnerable. The judge came to be judged. The king came to serve. You know, angels were at his beck and call, serving him day and night. But he left behind his servants to become a servant himself. Oswald Chambers put it, The life of Jesus is the highest and holiest, entering in at the lowliest door. His majesty was laid in a mangy manger. Philippians 2 says it best, Jesus made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself. Understand, when Jesus became a man, he didn't stop being God. He never abandoned his divine attributes. Throughout the Gospels, Jesus frequently demonstrated his knowledge and power, yet he limited their use. He refused to employ his superpowers to make his way easier or his load lighter. In taking on human flesh, Jesus became subject to the same pain and weakness and temptation and weariness that you and I feel. Messiah laid aside the perks and privileges of deity to taste our experience and to tangle with our enemies. And here is the million-dollar question. Why did he do it? Why in the world did he do it? If all Jesus was after was luxury or ease or worship or gratitude from us, he could have just hung out in heaven. But what Jesus wanted most was to win our love. See, the angel of the Lord, he was feared and revered. The commander of the Lord's army was respected and obeyed. The king of heaven was worshipped and praised. But our Lord Jesus wanted to be loved. So Jesus laid aside all his power and clout. And he made himself vulnerable. His majesty became a baby. Think of it this way. Jesus was tired of intimidating. He now wanted to entice the Messiah wanted to communicate his heart, not just herald his judgment. Here's the reason Jesus came to earth. He not only wanted to be feared, but he wanted us to follow him. To capture our hearts, he became vulnerable to our hurts. Is there someone you love? A person in your life? A distant spouse? An angry teenager, an estranged friend, and you'd like to be loved by them. Instead, the two of you don't even speak. 
No matter how hard you try, you just can't seem to break through to them. See, here's a possible problem. Are you too busy demanding respect to earn their respect? Be honest. For a few minutes, try to be objective. Do you try to intimidate or manipulate the person you love into agreeing with you? Or do you take an interest in their needs? Do you seek to persuade them to listen to what you have to say by the love that you show them? Are you demanding that everyone see the problem through your eyes? Or are you willing to see it through theirs? Are you too invincible to become vulnerable? And as a result, people fear you. But do they follow you? Christmas is a lesson to us on relationships. To reach us, the Almighty stooped to to our level. God stopped throwing his weight around. And he became a seven-pounder. Just a little baby. And you know what? No one bristles up at a baby, do they? See, God knew that a baby disarms us. It attracts us as nothing else does. A baby draws our attention. It's a baby's vulnerability that makes him or her irresistible to us. Here's the genius of the incarnation. The way you break down walls, the way you win over hearts of jaded human beings is by stooping down to their level, stepping into their shoes, showing them love that they don't deserve. Think of the person with whom you're at odds. Have you considered that their point might have some merit? Have you humbled yourself? Or are you speaking so loud to that teenager or to that friend or to that employee or to that spouse that you can't hear what they might be saying to you? Why do we always need to prove ourselves right? Hey, you might be right, but you can become so right you become wrong. What's more important to you? To always be right? Or do you want to build a bridge? Do you want a relationship? So what if you win an argument and lose the person? Our Lord was always right, but never in a haughty way. Never in a distant, arrogant, I told you so kind of way. Jesus was always right, but he made you believe he understood your feelings. And that he was on your side. Jesus might have disagreed with people, certainly. But they knew he cared. Our Lord never once folded his arms across his chest. And in frustration said, all right, that's it. Have it your way. I'm out of here. I'm right and one day you'll see. He never said that. Rather than draw lines in the sand, Jesus picked up a cross. And even on the cross, he reached out. To a convicted thief. He prayed for the very people who were crucifying him. Jesus continued to love to the very end. 2 Peter 3 verse 9 tells us it's the desire of Jesus today. That no person perish but that we all come to repentance. It's ironic but most of us concentrate on immunizing ourselves from potential hurts. Dealing with people often gets messy, especially lost or twisted people. And rather than become vulnerable, we become experts at building walls. We close ourselves off emotionally and relationally to people. 
We opt for protection rather than interaction. We become really good at keeping those who need us most, who we need as well, at arm's length. This past week I read an interesting statistic, really a, quite a sobering statistic. It was from Pew Research. Did you know that in 2007, 78% of Americans identified as Christian? That was 8 out of every 10 people. Today, the number is at 63% and shrinking. Soon, Christians will be a minority in America. And if you ask a Christian why this is so, they'll probably complain. Oh, the world hates us. But ask a secular person why they've rejected our faith. And many of them will tell you that they feel hated by Christians. We've stopped loving. The very thing that Jesus said would mark us as a true Christian. All too often we come across self-righteous and intimidating rather than Christ-like. Or we trumpet our political stands to prove that we're right. And we should stand up for righteousness, don't misunderstand. But what's more important, being right on abortion or giving hope to the woman who's pregnant and sees no future for her child? Where's the love that helps that lady hope for her unborn child? We need to love the victims of the lies and stand up for the truth. That Messiah came from majesty to manger teaches us that the goal of the Christian life is not to be invincible, but to become vulnerable. I like how C.S. Lewis put it, to love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will possibly be broken. If you want to be sure of keeping your heart intact, you must give your heart to no one. Wrap it carefully with hobbies, little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safely in the casket of your selfishness. And then he writes, The only place outside of heaven where you can be perfectly safe from the dangers of love is hell. Love demands vulnerability. Jesus could have remained perched on his throne in heaven and watched our plight from a distance as we sunk deeper and deeper into sin. He didn't have to take the risk. He could have played it safe. The Son of God could have stayed cozy and comfortable in heaven. He didn't have to expose himself to the pain of this earth. But he did. As Philippians 2 12, Two tells us Jesus was God, yet he laid aside his reputation. His highness got low. He identified with our plight. Jesus won our love, not by insisting on us bowing to him, but by him serving us. Jesus left majesty for the manger, the throne for the trough, and we're his followers as a result. We now love our Lord Jesus because he became vulnerable to us. For 114 days, Mary Daniels didn't see her husband due to the coronavirus restrictions at his senior care facility. Steve was, has Alzheimer's and Mary would visit him every night to help get him ready for bed. But when the pandemic hit, the facility became closed to all visitors And it was awful for Mary and Steve. 
She worried that his isolation would be more harmful to him than the virus if he contracted it. Dementia dementia patients desperately need human touch and human interaction. Mary had to find a way to visit her husband. And that's why she was so excited when out of the blue, the facility called her and asked her if she wanted a part-time job. The kitchen needed a dishwasher. Mary said, yes, knowing that she could now see Steve. She commented later, after just three visits, I could tell the difference in his demeanor. He now feels love. And this is what the king of the universe did. He too took a job so he could communicate love. Though coming to earth made Jesus vulnerable to pain and heartache, he came as a servant, the equivalent of a dishwasher, to touch our lives and to reveal his heart. Now we can feel his love and he can win back ours. By descending from majesty to manger, Jesus found what he was looking for. He found love. Not just the love of Mary and Joseph and the shepherds, but the love of people throughout the generations and from people all around the world, even my love and your love. And you too will find love when you descend into the manger, when you're willing to become vulnerable, when you care enough to serve, not just be served. It's then that you'll be able to bridge the gap and let those that you love know that you care. And you'll be able to reach them. When you make the commitment to serve, you'll earn people's love. And since the Lord's love in ways you've never known before, there's love in the manger and there is room in the manger. Bethlehem hotels were crowded that first Christmas. The place that Jesus was born was the place no one else wanted. And that's still the case 2,000 years later. Everyone is clawing their way to the top. Only a few people are seeking the lowly place. We all have a choice. We can fight and climb and scratch and leave others behind. Or we can humbly stoop and join the Messiah in the manger and reach them through our love in His. Hey, there's love in the manger. And there's room in the manger. And so let me ask you. Are you in the manger?